This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how much further Diocletian was willing to go to save the Roman Empire? Well, do we have a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo, and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, we got another big one. We got a part two today. We're ending the crisis of the third century. How are you feeling? Are you excited? Are you ready to get out of the gate? After this episode, Paul, I never want to use the words crisis, third, and century in the same sentence ever again. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. But yes, I'm very excited Amen. to finally have this wrapped up. Joking aside, it's been absolutely fascinating uh, following this crisis in such detail, going through it decade by decade, seeing the lows, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it all, seeing Aurelian reunite the empire, see the likes of Maximilius Frax kind of starts off in the barracks emperor seeing some of the bottom of the barrel emperors that come before Diocletian so it's going to be kind of sad seeing it all wrap up but as all things in history we're not all things but it has to come to an end at some point this crisis and we're there we are finally there and I feel a real sense of accomplishment for that matter getting us to this point I would say this has been a very AD history experience especially when taken as a whole where we're examining it the way we have and just having that opportunity by the design of the show. It really is. One of my aims when, when we first came up with this concept of AD history is to follow history on a level like this, almost like a TV show, following it like serial, a serializing history, I guess is how I like to explain it, like seeing it bit by bit play out. And this has been a great example of that kind of coming to fruition still in these really early days of AD history we've been doing this for two two years Paul but yeah we're still in the very early days in the grand scheme of history almost an eighth we, I think we've just surpassed an eighth of all of AD history so still got a lot of it to go well cheers to that that's still a hell of an accomplishment that's three centuries I like to think of it like we're looking at historical micro narratives that build into the macro narrative and we've had the opportunity to do that here. And while I'm very happy that we finally are wrapping up the crisis of the third century, because as we talked about in our previous episode, we're really, really pumped to get into some other stuff with some other places, to be sure. But this has been fascinating. And I'm really proud of what you and I have done here. And I'm looking forward to crossing the finish line at the end of the episode. Yeah, let's get to that finish line, Paul. Let's get to that finish line now. We absolutely will. But before we do that and the ground rules and all of that, we want to let you know that we also have your additional responses to the question of what are some of your experiences going through shared historical generational moments. And we got some really good one from you guys. You guys always come through. And we'd like to thank you who have submitted and you have taken the time 
to listen and submit and give us your incredibly thoughtful replies. But with that in mind and all of that out of the way, it is time for our necessary obligatory legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. So, Paul, we've already talked extensively about Diocletian, but but this guy was so pivotal that we need to carry on talking about his many reforms, specifically his military and civil reforms this time around, because there's so much he did to change the empire and fundamentally kick us, I mean, at least open the door into the world of the Middle Ages. So, Paul, please do lead this story. Well, thank you, Patrick. And with that in mind, I think it is best to set the scene. As we talked about in our previous episode, it is said that when Diocletian first assumed the imperial purple and entered the office of emperor in 284 AD, he was claimed to have said, crisis, what crisis? And when he assumed that office of emperor, he did not simply intend to fix the various issues that he thought were causing the crisis of the third century. He sought to do far, far more than that. His idea and his design and his ambition was to remake the Roman Empire into his idealized image of the empire. And in these sweeping reforms, some of which are clearly more successful than others, often gives him credit for extricating Rome from its third century circus. And the fact of the matter is that we had no ability to do this all in one swoop in our first episode. Hence the reason this is act two of two to get into his reforms and how they changed the empire. And they changed them in a revolutionary fashion, which is very interesting when you consider by his very disposition, Diocletian was very conservative in nature. Now, let's be clear, when we say conservative in nature, that's not as in conservative relative to current political orientation. It simply means that he's very careful and very measured in not taking whatever reforms he has too terribly far. But as we were also talking about in our last episode, Patrick, Diocletian, in many respects, when you look at it in close range and you begin to look at the nature of the reforms he was implementing, is Diocletian was a figure of many contradictions. That there were elements of his reforms that, if he had been subject to them and not emperor and came up in this time, then 30 something years before as the son of a freedman, that he most certainly would not, in all likelihood, have become emperor. So he's a very interesting guy in that way when you begin breaking it down. And when we were talking in our last episode, we covered things like how he did regarding the economy or the nature of taxation. 
a variety of different things, but that is only part of the story. And the fact of the matter is, if we really, really want to go the whole nine, this could easily be <laughs> something that would take three or four episodes to cover, but we're not doing that. But in this case, it definitely took two. And the best place to start in this case, Patrick, undeniably, given that he was a military man, without a doubt, and those instincts are very, very much inside him, is it's time to go into his various military reforms. Now, as we get into his military reforms, something that we're going to see, and this is also going to be true in our second segment when we get into his civil administrative reforms, that we're often dealing with a subject that's known by scholars as civil-military relations, which is essentially what it sounds like, the relationship between the military and the civilian populace. And the reason this is so particularly relevant here is because so much of the military prior to Diocletian's rule had gotten wrapped up into civil administration. And so a great deal of what he's doing is in fact separating them. And we're going to see the various ways that that works out and just how he chooses to handle it. And so we're going to start here from the very top in terms of what he did for the military in this case. And one of the biggest and highest priorities that he had when dealing with the military and molding the military in the fashion that he desired is he put a very strong emphasis on rebuilding, restoring, or building new infrastructure for military forces of the empire. Under Diocletian, he allotted resources to clearly improve the various infrastructure that would directly aid the needs of the Roman military, also known as the late Roman military by scholars more officially. These include the upkeep of roads, restoration of existing fortifications and installations, and the construction of new fortifications. But here's the interesting thing about these fortifications. We talk about moving into the early medieval period in Europe. These new fortifications were of particular note, both in their design and their locations. The new types of fortifications were designed to greater aid defense in particular. They were taller in terms of the towers and they were stronger, which in the case of being a defender in that case would give them a great potential to overcome the invader by giving them a much more advantageous high ground, as well as stronger and higher walls that would take greater resources for the invader to overcome. Their locations were of equally important note as well, as the location of these buffed up installations were chosen with seemingly an eye towards strategic defense. Now, when you were talking about how, uh, how, how, how these new fortifications were designed to look with higher towers, more defense, it started to sound somewhat like the classic medieval castle. You know, it's kind of the ones kid draw the turrets up top. It's, it's sounding awful like that. And we really are coming into the medieval age. We're really heading into the Middle Ages. And we're seeing that with the architecture that's starting to sprout up in Italy, which will soon start to sprout out across the entire Roman Empire, which is basically all of Europe. Exactly. When you begin looking up pictures of these fortifications that were credited to the initiatives of Diocletian's reforms, they look like stereotypical medieval European castles. It is 
unambiguous in that respect. And that's something we really don't associate with the Roman Empire anymore. But are we even talking about the Roman Empire anymore? That's what I feel like saying at times. Obviously, we are. But at some points, it seems like they're the Roman Empire in name only at points. Well, I guess depending on who you talk to, I've seen this kind of thrown out there. There, there are some that even go to the extent and suggest that in reality, Diocletian was more the first Byzantine emperor than he was truly the Roman emperor, which would make a lot of sense because so many of his initiatives and reforms and their legacy don't simply just influence the Byzantine Empire in its early ages. These particular forms and initiatives obviously stretch out to the very entirety of Byzantine history till about roughly 1500. So your point is absolutely well taken here, because in some respects, this is these are not things that the Rome that we've known, certainly the Rome in our show, had ever undertaken before. It's very atypical of them. Yeah, and something else that seems really out of character is the fact that throughout history and throughout our show, we've always seen Rome go after their enemy. They bring the fight to their enemy, but now they're building fortresses and expecting enemies to take the initiative and come to them, and they're preparing for enemies to come to them. This shows a sign of a Rome changing. They're, they're accepting the fact that they're going to be invaded. They, they've been invaded by Germanic soldiers an awful lot of times by this point in history, so they're fully prepared. Like we saw we saw the Aurelian Wars go up a few decades ago, so this is very much a Rome on the defense as opposed to a Rome on the offense. It's true, and it very much signifies a change of thinking that's really quite profound. And when we get later into the segment, we're going to dig deeper into it because this is just the very, very beginning of how we're seeing a incredible difference in the Roman way of war. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. And so some of the major things that he did also right off the top, he also did things like create 20 reconstituted legions of smaller size, certainly smaller than the legions that we have come to know during the period of our show in what they call the Principate era, really only constituting about a thousand soldiers each. And additionally, Diocletian actually increased the size of the Roman military from about 350,000 when he took power in 284 to just under 600,000 by the time he left power and retired. And that, that's really very interesting to note. But clearly, it goes a lot further than that, especially when we get into the civil-military relations stuff right here. Yeah, so it seems strange. You'd think this guy would want to, in this way of separating the military from civil life, think he'd want a smaller military, but no, make a bigger military. It seems to have worked out. And as you mentioned, Paul, one of the key things Diocletian did is he wanted to separate civil and military life. And this is something that might seem a bit alien to us, but we both live in countries where military authority and civil authority are very much separate entities. But that isn't always the case. There's even been events in more recent history where the military have taken over countries. Absolutely. And a lot of times what you're looking at when you're looking at the provinces and who are the governors of them, they're not just the governors of the province. They're also the military commander of the forces that are stationed there. And for you and I living in the present, specifically in the societies that we do, the, the way to think about it would be, for example, the, the governor of Maine was a, a two-star general with 
say, the National Guard units that he had under his command there. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. And on top of that, he's not just dealing with that military side of things. He's also dealing with all the civil administrative side of things for all the, say, the civilians that lived in Maine. There's not a lot of people live in Maine, but you kind of get the, <laughs> you get the idea. He would have to do both. And for Diocletian, that's a problem because, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But essentially, he's interested in not just separating the power, but he's looking to create greater efficiency. He's looking for professionals to focus on a particular task that falls squarely in their professional competencies. And that's most certainly what he's doing with the military right here. Yeah, so I guess the main thing he did was actually split these positions. He made two new positions. This is the position of the Vicari and the Dux. Might be saying that incorrectly. No, you got ducks. it right. You got it right. Ducks. That's good to know. The ducks. The ducks. Not D-U-C-K-S. D-U-X. Ducks. Not the anyway, mighty ducks. Not the mighty ducks. Sure, yes. Uh, so let's up the Vicari. And these were the provincial governors who previously controlled the military forces within the province. Those uh, Vicari evolved into being military commanders over time, handling both civil administrative affairs as well as commanding his troops in that province. Diocletian went forward and split that single role into two separate posts held by two separate figures. So the Vicari in these reforms became the civil professional administrator, meaning they dealt with mainly civil affairs, in fact, only civil affairs. So that's when the ducks came in, not the big ones that eat bread, the ducks, as we were mentioned. And this was a newly created position. And this word of the ducks, which I'm butchering on and off again. It's, of course, the uh, forerunner and etymological forerunner to Dukes, as we have today. All connects in. It can all come back to names. Mm. And uh, these guys were charged with commanding the forces stationed in a, any given province. Those who held the post were often career professional military officers who were not supposed to have any political authority, as former governors did that held both civil and military roles. But the nature of their role was highly flexible, and the reach of their authority could be expanded significantly. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but Paul... This seems like the, to, to our modern ears anyway, this seems like the most obvious thing to do, to have a, a key separation between civil life and military life. But to Rome, especially Rome in this period, that wasn't the case. And what I find interesting is, and, and we talked about this in the last episode, how a lot of Diocletian's reforms, while they were enough to get Rome out of crisis, they kind of crumbled in on themselves pretty soon. And even when we think of medieval, the, the medieval ages, the Middle Ages, military and civil life are so intertwined. When we think of like Middle Ages kings, they're more often than not on the battlefield with their men. So like, it's once again, that example of civil life and military life intertwining. We think of kings like that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And you're mentioning the, our, our current world, our, our countries and how they operate. There's obviously a very strong separation between the military and civilian leadership. And in this case, for the most part, both of our countries are very much predicated that whether it be, in your case, the head of government, in my case, the head of government is also the head of state and they're also the commander in chief and chief diplomat and all of that. They're civilians commanding mm. the military. And the idea that you can have an officer in these kind of positions doing both is so alien to us in the modern world. But over time and through this Principate period and as time went on, 
it just made sense to do them both. And so in Diocletian separating them, obviously he definitely wanted to increase the efficiency aspect. And so his feelings were that in doing this and splitting the roles, they accomplished several things by doing so. One, no one person holds each, and with them separated, they could focus on their single responsibility so as to better manage the needs of each. In one person's hand, one side would always suffer at the expense of focus on their other responsibilities, and more often than not, the side that would suffer would be the civil administrative side. And this is particularly problematic here because, as we've discussed at many points during the third century crisis, is that the Roman government was essentially becoming a degenerate in regards to fulfilling their obligations. The only thing they really seemed to keep up on was making sure that people were paying their taxes and they were more or less operating for the benefit and for the needs of the Roman military. And so this had to split off. And Roman military commanders no longer holding civil administration responsibilities, the new ducks could go on campaign without their assigned provinces civil administration suffering in their absence. This was a problem faced by many emperors over the last three centuries of our show. So when the province commander is also the military commander of those forces there, when for whatever reason they're deployed onto a military assignment, that meant that the person who was in charge of the civil administration for that province was gone. And a great deal would suffer because, to use an old term, you can't serve two masters. And this is particularly true here. And this is something that Diocletian was most certainly trying to overcome. It, it, it seems so painstakingly, I've not said this already, but it seems so painstakingly obvious to have this split between military and civil rule. He was so ahead of his time, Diocletian. It's, also, it's almost frightening. Like this guy could also, sounds almost like he could be ruling a country today <laughs> from the sounds of this sort of thing. But going back to having civil and military in one, I'd be interested to see the leaders of our countries on the battlefield, Paul. I think that'd be quite interesting. Uh, interesting <laughs> is most definitely the operative adjective there, to be sure. So the third thing that he's set to accomplish in doing this is that in theory, all of these changes kept the military out of the tax purse of a given province. Now, why is this important? Because it makes them less able to use those funds to fuel a potential usurper's bid for power. So when you're both the military commander and you're the one collecting the taxes, you have a means, better means, I should say, to raise a force that can potentially upend the order and unseat the ruling emperor. He's literally putting a bureaucratic stop to the Barak Emperors, it sounds like there. <laughs> That's very much what he had in mind. He wanted yeah, to make like, it, at the very least, a lot harder to do. So much red tape to become a Barak Emperor is just not worth it anymore, though he was a Barak Emperor himself. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to. Unfortunately, Civil War is going to break out again, but yeah. you know, this is the old college try for him. And so, and, and number four, the last thing that he aimed to achieve by doing this is that in its rudimentary form, this was a basic check and balance to achieve separation of power. And it makes all the sense in the world for their situation to be sure. And as far as the position of the ducks, that was by design created for flexibility. So one of the things that's interesting about the way Diocletian was thinking of the Roman military at this time is that he wanted to give it flexibility. And one of the ways he did this was through the position of the duck. 
Now, the ducks, for the most part, in the simplest form, they commanded all of the units stationed in their assigned province. But like I said, flexibility here. And so while they usually had command of forces in a single province, at the direction of the emperor, they could be appointed to command other forces in neighboring regions to respond to a particular threat. Now, why is this helpful? Well, importantly, and this is true of any military unit, it's true of any good organization, to be sure, where you're dealing with multiple people and many responsibilities and everything that's going on, is that in doing so, it helps clarify and specify a clear chain of command during those times. So that way you don't have two sets of armies that are assigned to the same position trying to go to the same force and that there's no clarification of the leader of which army is in fact senior to the two of them. And so when you have the ducks there, there's no question who's in charge because by direction of the emperor, if he deems it necessary, he can put them under the control of that ducks, and there's no question of who is in charge. So this is a really helpful step in terms of clarifying that chain of command, because if you don't have clarification for that chain of command, things can get messy really quickly. More to the point, even though they are batting for the same Roman team, and this is true of any military, it's true of any organization, there's also competition as well. You know, somebody thinks, oh, I should be in charge. I am more deserving. I am more capable. Well, they may think that, but if the emperor is coming down and saying, he's in charge, make it work, that's a very different situation. Rome, is, this is this is the my best analogy for Diocletian. And I kind of mentioned it last time I said he would love SimCity, but oh, Rome, yeah. <laughs> was like a, Rome was basically a messy bedroom or like a messy kitchen and Diocletian just organized it. Every bit of it, every speck of yeah, dirt. Yeah, like, okay, this is where the knives go, this is where the plates go, this is like, then there's another, then there's a separate bit for where the dinner knives go, there's a separate bit for where the steak knives go, the forks go here, the evening forks go here, the soup spoons go here. <laughs> it's not just everything everywhere. He just, he just polished it all. It kind of reminds me as well when like my computer is an absolute mess and then you put everything into neat little folders everywhere. He just, he just cleaned up decades and centuries of word of mouth sort organization just kind of half-assed organization just organize it all that's amazing and speaking of how much diocletian loved organizing thing he reorganized the military units completely and gave them new roles and uh one of these was the limitanae i've only read this Limitani. word limitanae thank you paul the limitanae they were static border garrisons often stationed at frontier installations they were led by the ducks for the province or region for their assignment and there has been much debate and evolution of thought as to the exact nature of these forces and who exactly served on them and the quality of their troops and for a long time, it was concluded that the Limitani were subpar forces, poorly trained troops, far from a quality vanguard for Rome's defences. And the thinking on this conclusion has evolved significantly in modern scholarship, that the Limitani were a good deal of higher quality and far more valuable military units than we first presumed. And apparently they were known to be called to duty to support the Comitenses in time of larger conflict. Yes, when they did this, they were then known as the pseudo-comitenses, which is an interesting note here. So they couldn't have been that bad because they were willing to use them as supplementary forces for basically the flower of the Roman army. But we'll talk more about the comitenses here in a moment with you. Yeah, they couldn't have been too terrible if they were willing. But then again, they were the backup to the comitenses. So that makes you think as well. They were the backup to the comitenses. So that 
makes you wonder as well, but who were the competencies? Well, they were highly trained, well-equipped and experienced units that served as the flower of Rome's best military forces. And competencies were stationed at various locations that were clearly inland from the emperor's frontiers. These locations were strategically significant as it placed these forces where they could exponentially respond to military threats quicker to points within reach of their inland position. In doing so, it gave the emperor far more strategic flexibility to respond to a given mounting threat. And furthermore, the size of a particular competencies would vary depending on the perceived threat in one region of the empire. So competencies could be smaller in an area under little threat with less strategic significance. Whereas competencies in an area of greater perceived threat, e.g. the Balkans or Asia Minor, especially I imagine on the frontiers as well, where the Germanic troops were getting on, even where the Sassanids were pestering. Absolutely. Uh, you, yeah, you have much larger forces in places like that. It's a really clever idea. And once again, it's that flexibility we're talking about. The contencies weren't just one thing and one thing only. They could, they could ebb and flow. If they need to be bigger in one place, they could be. If they need to be smaller in one place, they could be. Think about all the various conflicts we've discussed in our coverage of Roman history during the scope of our show. And so often, the strategic redeployments often meant large armies traveling extremely long distances to deploy where the threat presented itself. And so the inherent deployment of the Comitensis cut such time down significantly. And I think the benefits of that are rather self-evident. But moreover, if a major Roman army simply sat in the immediate proximity to the frontiers, should they be defeated by the invader, that invader could then run roughshod into the Roman interior before Rome was able to summon appropriate forces and armies to halt the invader's advance. And this is a very risky strategy. If they break through, think of the damage that they can do. It's really, really incredible. And if you're the emperor and if you're military planners in Rome, once they're on the inside, even when you eventually defeat them, presumably, you still have to rebuild and go back and go through the expense and time to restore what the invader undeniably just blew right through. So this made a lot of sense. Now, in this regard, when you're looking at the committentsies and how they were stationed, how they were deployed, and how they were intended to be used, this also gives us some really interesting insight into the evolving Roman way of war and what is known in military planning terms as defense in depth. Now, that's interesting. So this leads us to a better answering of the question you had about earlier about Rome's traditional way of war and preferring to take the fight to the enemy, as we were talking about a little while back. And so from this military planning perspective, when we're talking about these various changes as a whole, it is highly reminiscent of a concept, as I mentioned, called defense in depth. And so what is defense in depth? Well, this is the gist of it. It's evolved over time. It's something that has been used in modern conflicts that don't go back very far from where we are at the present. But essentially, the idea of defense in depth in its most basic conceptual form is the idea of there being several rungs of defense for an invader the further they advance into enemy territory. So at the frontier, 
they encounter fortifications and lesser resourced and possibly slightly less trained troops at the border. What do these do? They basically serve as a speed bump to hopefully slow down the invader and hopefully take a toll on them and weaken them somewhat and their forces as they begin to invade further into the interior. And once they pass their initial rung of defense on this defense in depth, they then encounter a stronger and better resourced army than they faced at the frontier itself. And on top of that, and even if they're living off the land, which is something that's very common in warfare, certainly of this period, even until very recently, to be sure, and in some cases I'm sure it still happens, of living off the land, they still have supply chains they have to worry about. They still have supply convoys that are basically getting tugged along by horses and whatnot that they need in order to keep the army supplied and moving. So you have these large baggage trains, if we were to call them anything, that become more and more vulnerable the further you get into enemy territory. And so this is a real vulnerability the further you get in, and this is very much part of the idea of what defense in depth is all about. And so the further they get in, and the longer their supply train becomes, they have to deal with protecting that and being vulnerable in that respect, in addition to the fact that the further in you go, you also have a much greater chance of being encircled and annihilated into what is essentially a cauldron battle of the time, which is a really interesting term for this sort of thing. So you get swarmed in and then you get destroyed. But it also forces the invaders to make difficult strategic decisions as to their advance. So in this case, to use Roman roads to continue their marching into the interior that would lead them to points of strategic defense designed by the Romans in advance specifically for this purpose. And then you're forcing them to fight on the Romans' terms as defenders by taking on the clearly advanced design defensive measures that the Romans had designed for this purpose. And to deviate from the roads, while you may be avoiding these kind of choke points and these points of strategic significance that are designed by the Romans for this purpose, you go off the roads and then your advance slows down significantly because you're going through areas that are not designed for large transit. So the idea really is in regards to defense in depth here is that you slow them down, you have your greater forces waiting on the interior at specifically chosen strategically advantageous points that have the ability to respond to these threats. And then as the invader, you're forced to make very difficult decisions, neither of which are going to be without some very high cost. And while this is definitely not the Roman traditional way of war, there is definitely a certain logic to it as well. Yeah, there is. And Paul, I must ask you, what do you think these changes tell us exactly about the military at this time? Because this sounds so different to the Rome we know. Do, do you think, as I said earlier, this is this feels very much like a Rome on the defense as opposed to a Rome on the offense, which we're so used to seeing Rome on the offense. You know, we followed the likes of Hadrian, the Pax Romana, where the empire kept on expanding and expanding. This 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 feels like an empire that's carrying in on itself. And I just wonder what you thought of this. What does this say about how Roman leaders are thinking about the position of the empire during this period? You know, that's actually a really deep question and really quite revealing as to how the empire is thinking of itself and its interests. So it's definitely important to note that indeed defense in depth, which is most certainly what this appears like, 
is very, very antithetical for how the Romans preferred to do it. The Romans were very big on bringing the fight to the enemy. And there's a lot to be said for that, because we've mentioned this a bit in the show before, but when it comes to combat, especially land combat, where you're dealing with these large ancient armies, being able to take the initiative and keep the initiative and keep the pressure on the enemy army, keeping them on the back foot, keeping them guessing, keeping the pressure on them is an invaluable asset in war. Being Having the initiative today, despite all the technological advances we've made, is still ridiculously important in war. And so when I look at this and, and seeing this really, I would say, atypical change to how the Romans seem to be choosing to fight, it tells me that, well, one, they're very much in consolidation mode. They don't have significant ambitions to expand the empire in a way they did much earlier in our show. And even from very early on in our show, Patrick, you still had Augustus telling Tiberius, more or less on his deathbed, that don't go into Germania, don't expand the empire, consolidate, make sure that we really take hold in the places that we already are. Even at that point, in the beginning of the first century, Rome is still ridiculously large. But Romans yeah. being Romans, you know, they see land, they have to take it. You know, that's centuries of acquisitive blood there. You have to wonder to yourself, Paul, if uh, Tiberius and following emperors heeded Augustus' words and instead of expanding willy-nilly, did decide to just focus on what they had. You've got to wonder how that would have changed things. It speaks of a Rome that on some core level feels an inherent vulnerability to the point where they're not willing to set out to get their enemy. They're far more interested in defending their gains and that they very much feel the pressure on all sides and that not only do they not have necessarily a desire to conquer, it almost seems like it's possibility that there's something of a small crisis of confidence because something that we've definitely seen throughout the show and something I hope we focus on a bit more in the future Take for, say, the Germanic tribes, and we start getting into, say, the Germanic confederation. The Germanic tribes, and we use that as a blanket term, there are many different ones over, the, over time and throughout the time in our show, we're getting a point now where militarily, whether it be the Germanic tribes in Europe or whether it be the Sassanid Empire out in the Middle East, we're beginning to see their militaries reach parity with Rome because they're learning from how the Romans fight. They're learning how to improve their own capabilities. They have gone and taken the time to innovate militarily, whereas in the case of the Romans, they're in this really difficult spot where there's been a lot of stagnation in terms of how they further their ability to fight. And it's been going on for a very long time. Now, to credit and Diocletian, what he's doing here with his military reforms most certainly is innovating. It may not be the Roman way of war, but for all intents and purposes, from a very logical standpoint, what he's trying to implement makes a hell of a lot of sense. But when I look at this, clearly these powers outside of them, these existential threats, are reaching parity with the Romans, and the Romans are worried about them in a way that they had not been worried about them on the field. There was a time when you were never at all uncertain that the Romans would eventually prevail. And now they're very much feeling the pressure 
not just because these guys are coming in from the borders, but because they've gotten a lot better and they're reaching parity with them. So I almost read this as a crisis of confidence because for the most part, those who are truly confident in war and believe that they can win and they're prepared to do so generally do take the fight to the enemy, unless, of course, it is truly advantageous to remain on the defensive if you can pull more out of it. Just as a brief historical example, for those of you in the know, look up the history of the Battle of Kursk, and you'll see the kind of thing we're talking about here. But I would say that on the whole, the way I read this is a crisis of confidence. And even though Diocletian's reforms are very influential, and they'll be very, very important in helping the empire survive for at least another century, these military reforms, especially how they're being set out and how they're thinking about fighting, definitely mark a very different attitude of the Roman Empire that, quite frankly, we haven't seen before. There was one key word you used in all of that pool that I didn't think we really used for Rome before, and that was vulnerable. Like, that's not yeah. a word we've come to link with Rome. Even during the rest of the crisis, they were still fighting just fighting for fighting hard, fighting fit, thinking, oh, we're, we're not going to lose, we're fine. So for Diocletian to come around and go, hey, hey, things aren't going well, to, to be big enough, I talked about this last time, but to be big enough to go, hey, there are issues, we need to fix ourselves, as opposed to going, no, everything's fine, let's just keep on battling. That's really impressive. To, to, to take the Roman Empire and do what he did with it is very impressive, I I think so anyway. <laughs> no, there's no doubt about it. And right there is a good bird's eye view of how he handled the military. And even as we go through that and go through it in detail, it's a huge thing. You could go into so much more detail about it. And something that else is really important to note before we wrap the segment here, and I probably should start it out with it, but still it's important to say anyway, is that as far as the scholarship for this period, what really is the beginning of what is known as the late Roman army, the sources are a bit sketchy. And that's something that is widely acknowledged by scholars, especially in terms of primary sources, where a lot of the sources are coming a few centuries later, and they're writing back. And there are some things that are credited to Diocletian that may not have actually happened in this time. They may have happened with Constantine. And another great example, of course, is the Laminatenses and the quality of those troops, whereas earlier on, it was thought that they were lesser quality troops. They were just kind of schlubs at the border, basically serving as a physical meat pack speed bag to a much more capable force, as an example. So this is a general idea of what happened, but the sources are sketchy, so it is hard to pin down some of these specifics. But this is generally how he changed it. And boy, it is a fundamental change, especially when you start talking about the concept of having prepared the empire for defense and depth. But with that in mind... We're going to get to your additional responses to our questions from last time, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, as always, 
Anna Domini. So Patrick, in our last episode, well, actually two episodes now ago, we were having a conversation and you spontaneously came up with a wonderful idea when we were answering the Patreon submitted question about major shared generation historical moments and how we've experienced them and things of that nature and where you asked our listeners to write in with their experiences as far as shared historical generational moments that are really big. And last time we got some fantastic replies, but since we were recording it only three days after that episode dropped, we recognized that we still need more time for people to have the ability to hear it and respond and things of that nature. So this is really part two of going through your responses to the questions about your experience during major shared generational historical moments, and you've done a fantastic job so far. I mean, this has been really interesting, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been so, so interesting hearing all you guys, and there's always more to hear, and like, especially this time around, there's like major event. There's there's more stories of events we talked about last time. One of you guys talked about one of your memories of a certain historical event that was kind of a lame duck in the end, and it's always funny to talk about that, and we'll be mentioning that in a moment. However, one of you also mentioned a very local historical event to you guys as well, and that was really interesting here as well. But Paul, do you want to take us through our first uh, message back from for this one? Yes, absolutely. And this one comes from Helen from Ontario. Quote, I was in high school during 9-11. I was in Toronto. My teacher put the idea in my head that someone could hit the CN Tower. My dad could have easily been at the baseball stadium, which at the time I believe was still called Sky Dome. I believe it's called Rogers Center today. That is right beside the stadium. And once again, that's Helen from Toronto. And I've heard similar things from other people, actually. I remember there was a professor whom I learned a great deal from, very fond of back in my university days, who, of course, on 9-11 was in Chicago, and he was teaching downtown near the water tower. And he mentioned how the idea crossed his mind that, in his words, we were within tipping distance of the John Hancock building, which, of course, is one of Chicago's major skyscrapers there right off of Michigan Avenue. And so wherever you were in the world, but certainly in the United States, or North America, considering we're also talking about Canada here. Especially the Northeast, I suppose, as well. Absolutely. You were absolutely terrified that anything could happen and happen close to you. And it was a very rational worry at the time, to be sure. And this really goes into what I was talking about a couple episodes ago, and maybe even last time, I'm not sure, that even if you weren't in and around New York City, even if you weren't in and around the Beltway in D.C. with the Pentagon, or what happened, of course, with the flight over Pennsylvania. If you were near anything of, you know, clear recognition and something that, you know, was a major landmark that stuck out, you had very good reason on that day to worry that you could be next because simply put, we didn't know. And it was terrifying not knowing. So whether you were really close to the epicenters of where the attacks occurred or you were on the Pacific coast, I feel like I've heard a lot of different people talk about various permutations of exactly what Helen is describing there. And hers is a very good insight into exactly what that was like for a lot of people, in this case, living in North America at the time. It was a time of tremendous fear and uncertainty because it was a serious vulnerability. There's no question about it. We've had, we had other terrorist attacks in the past. I mean, this wasn't even the first time 
there had been a terrorist attack at the World Trade Center, even less than a decade before that. It was not unheard of, but this was the time, really, the first really serious time in a modern American history where we felt incredibly vulnerable, you know, save like mutually assured destruction, certainly in this case for terrorism, on our home turf. And it's changed just irrevocably ever since. Yeah. And obviously now we have history on our side. We know the CN Tower is never on the radar. But as you mentioned, you just didn't know at the time. While it might sound somewhat silly to even have that idea, I, I can only imagine, and that's not being old enough to uh, fully comprehend it and not being in the right location. I can only imagine being old enough and being in the location, being in North America, anywhere in North America, you must have an absolute fear in your system that it could have happened anywhere because you just didn't know at the time. Obviously, we, like I said, we can look back now to know, oh, like it, well, not oh, but we can look back now and know that where the targets were, what hit, what didn't hit, but and what was never on the radar. But at the time, it would have been fear. I can completely understand that. And Helen, that was wonderful insight about the smidgen of this, the Canadian perspective on 9-11 to some extent. It, it, it's not one you hear all too often, but fascinating to hear. No, it definitely adds a lot. And thank you, Helen, for your submission. We very much appreciate it. Yeah. And our next submission comes from Elizabeth B. from Missouri. And they said, I remember Y2K, specifically the year 1999 into the year 2000. Everyone knew the computers were going to crash and the world was going to end. Consequently, there were more conspiracy theorists than usual. <laughs> Half the clock turned 12 and nothing happened. A bit of an anticlimax, but still memorable. So Y2K, um, like I said, there's a, there a big lame dud of, there, is there's any, is there's any more, anything more anticlimactic in the history books then Y2K, I haven't heard of it. I mean, it's kind of good that it was anticlimactic because yeah. if, if, if it happened how people thought it was going to happen, that wouldn't have been great. But it's just one of those funny things. And it's probably hit that stage now where there's young adults in the world who weren't about for it to happen. I mean, I was just about, I kind of remember Y2K being a thing. It's a very vague memory of it. But now there's people where it's just sort of a mere concept, a mere historical event that happened. Well, I was old enough that to remember didn't happen, this. That didn't happen, I have to say, yeah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I, I certainly was old enough to remember this and comprehend this. And of course, there was this whole hubbub going on about it leading up to that time. And I think it's important to note here that a lot of the companies that were responsible for making this change from the two digits to the four digits, and just for those who are, for whatever reason, not familiar, they're too young, or they've heard it, but they never really looked into it, the idea was that in most computers it had to do with the dating system, specifically the year that we were only using two digits, given when these computers were developed and the software form were developed, that indicated the, the year within the 20th century, but they didn't have the full four digits. And apparently with that happening, if it just went back to zero, zero, you know, in mass, it would have created this terrible technological chaos. But a lot of the companies and those who are responsible for making those changes spent a lot of time and resources to ensure those changes were made and that its implementation was smooth. And luckily, there was very little there. But something I would definitely suggest to our listeners to kind of get an interesting, albeit exaggerated, but interesting insight into some of the thinking that went into Y2K is an episode of King of the Hill called Hellenium. <laughs> Have you seen Hellenium, Patrick? You know, I, I, I adore King of the Hill, but my view here in the UK, 
it's so hard to come by King of the Hill. It was on actual TV. Now it's not on any sort of streaming service. But no, I don't know that episode off my head. But when I can, when I strike gold and find an episode of King of the Hill somewhere on television, I sit down and watch it because it's a wonderful television show. Well, if you're here in the States, I, I cut the cord a long time ago. But you can find it if you're willing to, you know, go on your computer. Leave it at that. <laughs> leave it at that. No, it's a fantastic episode that kind of looks at a humorous take on all of this because naturally, if you're familiar with King of the Hill and the titular Hank Hill, who's essentially the main character and one of the supporting characters that is his friends that he sends and drinks beer with out in the alley that they've been friends with all since high school and before that, is of course Dale Gribble. And one of the <laughs> cornerstones of Dale Gribble's character is that he is this incredible conspiracy theorist. Every conspiracy you can imagine that is out there, he is absolutely obsessed with and takes it to the most absurd conclusions. And in this case, naturally, Y2K was the perfect candidate to really get him rolling. And where Hank initially started out as not being worried, in a very interesting way, Dale ends up managing to rock his proverbial boat and get him worrying about it <laughs> so it's a really good episode and y2k was a real thing it was scary but we really did go the distance to make sure those changes were made and based on what we can see right now uh, as far as the age of a lot of our audience there are some of you guys out there who weren't even alive when this happened let alone being able to recall the lead up and and all of the the chaos and and worry that was leading up to this potential problem but even though nothing happened, and thank God for that, it was a real serious thing. So I really want to thank Elizabeth B. for sending that in to us. We really appreciate it. It was an excellent contribution. I was hoping somebody would bring up Y2K. And fun fact, now, as we're approaching a time where there are a lot of young adults who weren't alive, we're getting to that period now. We've seen it very much with the 90s, um, how 90s fashion is very much back. I, I walk down the street, I see so many baggy jeans and center patterns. It's like Kurt Cobain's Rizzo from the Dead at Point. Um, the 90s are very bad, but also 2000s are on the comeback and it's known as Y2K aesthetic. That fashion whole movement is known as the Y2K aesthetic and that's just wonderful. Morbid a little bit, but wonderful. Yeah, you know, the way these things work, especially when you're talking about younger folks, especially like teenagers and whatnot, they almost invariably seem to be interested in a time period that's about 20 years before where we are right now. And I remember back when I was in high school going into the mid-2000s, a lot of kids were really obsessed with the 80s. Yeah, so that, that was in the 80s came back, and we've seen it. Now, the, the, the 2010s brought back the 90s, and now the 2020s are bringing back the 2000s. It is really 20 years or so, because that's just enough time to... By the time you're 20 or so, you're... You're old enough to have your own like identity, I suppose, but that is it. You're still really young, and that's such a it's crazy that there were people who weren't alive who who weren't alive in the nineties. I find that bonkers. You see some people's birth certificates, so like you hear some people's birthdays, and they're born. I was born in the year two thousand one. I'm like, no, no one was born after the year nineteen ninety eight, Max. <laughs> you know, as somebody who was born in 1987, I live the 90s to a whole. And one thing that's <laughs> undeniable about us 90 kids, the ones that actually really experienced it, is we are just militantly, absolutely militantly nostalgic for that time. All you have to mm. do is say the words 
Nickelodeon or those first generation Nicktoons. And it's just one of the many things that would lead us just to lighten up or hit me, baby, one more time. (laughs) You know, that that's what we grew up with. And I've always had this theory personally that the 90s ended in September of 2001. I very much feel and talk about 2001. We could talk about the 90s all day, me and you, Paul, because yeah. to me, the 90s yeah, are this absolutely. wonderful, hazy memory. Like, yeah. my, you know, those really abstract childhood memories. Most of all of mine exist in the 90s for me. So that's, that, that's where the 90s is for me. I think the modern world started in 2001. It basically, yeah. the previous world ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Then we had about 10 years of car, well, not obviously 10 years of car, but we had a moment of like a respite and then 9-11 happened. And that's where we are now. That's that's my view on modern history anyway. I also had a teacher, I remember, who who once actually put it in the syllabus when he was lighting out times for U.S. history. He wrote in the margins that the 1960s ended in 1973 with the resignation of Richard Nixon. <laughs> that's another very good way of putting it. Yeah, like these things, like if you look at it from a historical point of view, I know we pride ourselves on going decade by decade, but so yeah. often history doesn't. History doesn't contain itself to decades. So our last one comes from James from presumably Wisconsin. And we presume he's from Wisconsin due to the content of his uh, email. And James sent us a lovely big email. We've had to cut some of it down a little bit. But James, just so you know, we have both read your entire email. Really great. So just for you all to know, but it's still we still got quite a bit to go through. So let's go with Hello AD History. First off, I really love the podcast. It's really cool and interesting look at history. Second, I have two shared moments, and one is more focused on the state I live in than it is national or international. I do also have two memories from my dad about his relationship with two famous people dying that might be interesting as well. So as far for the memory relating to my state, the setting is 2011 in Wisconsin. Its new governor, Scott Walker, and the legislature has set in motion to bring about a controversial bill to undermine collective bargaining rights for unions, which upset them. The union I'm also most familiar with at this point was the teachers' union, due to the fact that I was in my junior year in high school and also my mother is a teacher. I remember when things were getting started, there was a student protest during third period one day, where instead of going to class, students would go to the gym instead. I also remember numerous people going to the Capitol to protest there, and even Tony Shalhoub came to voice his support for the protesters. I didn't go to either myself, but I did support the cause. When it came time to vote on the bill, many Democratic members of the legislature fled the state so they couldn't vote on it. However, through some bureaucratic happenings, the Republicans forced the vote and it passed. This eventually led to a recall election for Governor Walker in 2012, which was unsuccessful. It was also the first major election I voted in. Now, as for those stories from my dad about famous people dying. First, when my dad was young, he and his family went on vacation. On their way back, they found a place selling Norman Rockwell paintings, and my grandparents decided to get one on the way back if they had the money. Well, they had the money for how much they cost when they got there, but on their vacation, Rockwell died, so the price went up and they couldn't afford it. The other one is that, as established, my dad was in the National Guard, as mentioned, we cut some of this out, but his dad was in the National Guard, and lived in Wisconsin. In 1990, my dad had the opportunity to go to a Stevie Ray Vaughan concert, but decided not to go. But nobody knew that this would be SRV's last concert, because he died in a helicopter crash later that night. 
So he didn't miss the opportunity to do so. I just think it's an interesting story. This was a lot. I do tend to get wordy sometimes, but thanks for reading this, even if it's not allowed, and thanks for making a great podcast. James, we did read it aloud. Obviously, we didn't read it all aloud, and we always appreciate lovely long emails like this. Thank you so much for getting in touch with us. And there's some really interesting stuff in this email. I don't know too much about your local state story, but it was great that you shared that memory with us. Paul, I don't know if you can shed some light as being stateside yourself. Was this was this across the entire country, this story, or was this more set? Was this more a Wisconsin story? It definitely captured some national attention at the time because it was a big deal. Anytime you're challenging collective bargaining uh, in, in this way, where you're legitimately jeopardizing it based on whatever it is that you want to happen, that does catch people's attention. And I think it maybe it caught my, I would say, more on a peripheral basis because when this was all going on, my brother was, was living in Wisconsin for a time. And so I was getting these brief periodic updates in terms of what's happening in the state and things of that nature. So I am familiar with this story. And before we continue on here, first off, James, thank you for your extremely kind words about the show. We know you from Twitter, in fact, and we, we know that you are you have a lot to say and we really do appreciate it. And we know you've been a longtime supporter of the show and we both like to thank you a great deal for that. It means a great deal to us. Anytime somebody has kind words to say about the show. So yeah, I'm familiar with it. And I find it interesting how people find those moments and, and which ones really are significant to them. In this case, this is something that is far more Wisconsin local as opposed to a, a huge national story, though it did make national headlines. And it certainly was followed some just given the, the nature of what Walker was trying to do at the time. I can't really give you any more insight than that, unfortunately, because it was very much outside of my sphere of everyday life. But I, I do remember it happening. I really find the Norman Rockwell story incredible. Yeah, that's the bit that gets me. My God. Yeah. What a miss. What a missed opportunity. to. Oh, so if you don't know Norman Rockwell, you know his paintings. It's that classic Americana portrait. Um, wonderful artist. Saturday Absolutely. Evening what? Post. No, yeah. all, all that dealio. If you ever come across a Norman Rockwell painting, buy it. If you can, if you afford, can afford it, yeah. yeah. To, to think, to think what that if they had managed to acquire it, what that would mm -hmm. be worth today. Assuming anyone mm. wants to sell it, I mean, it's a Norman Rockwell. I mean, yeah, that's that's that is a real treasure to yeah. have for anybody. I, I don't think I could ever let something like that out of the family. It's far more means far more to me as as the actual piece than the dollar amount that could be put to it. But that's an incredible story. That, and of course, missing out on seeing Stevie Ray Vaughan. I know in the email, you mentioned that your dad had seen him before, but without a doubt, he's one of the greats, and we, and we lost him just far, far too soon. And I, I really do enjoy Stevie Ray Vaughan. That, is a, that was one very, very talented guitarist. But no, those are some incredible stories. I, I know that they were not necessarily fall within the, the shared historical generational moments, but they were just too good to pass up. You know, you, you can't not share something like that. No, it was really great stuff to share. And thank you all so much for sharing those stories with us. Yeah, no, it, it was really fantastic. And props to you, my interesting friend, Mr. Name Explained, for coming up with the idea to ask the audience. This is one that really did resonate with you guys. And we could not be any happier with your responses, the quality of them, extremely thoughtful 
giving your perspective on many of these events that, if you're listening to the show, you probably live through many of them. Not all, but many. Certainly you and I live through all the ones that came our way. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing to, yeah, definitely nothing out of our realm of history, our realm of life anyway. No, thank you all so much for sharing those with us all. Absolutely. And we'll always keep our radar for something else that makes sense in the future when we want to hear from you guys. And the truth of the matter is that we always want to hear from you guys. But this is, of course, usually the Patreon submitted question segment. And if you really want to help out the show and you're a big fan of AD history, one of the best ways that you can do that is by donating to the AD History Podcast on Patreon. Starting at the $3 tier or higher, you get benefits at that level of, one, getting the show 48 hours early, so 48 hours in advance of its public release, which is on the Saturday. And if you're listening to us through a podcast catcher or a podcast app of some sort, we have a special Patreon RSS feed that you can plug into that pod catcher of choice and where the episode will download to your device automatically when we release it 48 hours early. In addition to that, you also get access to special exclusive Patreon content like our mini-series, The Best of BC, where we take some of our favorite hits from the epoch that predates our show and we go all the way back to the beginning. And of course, the episode that you get 48 hours early is also the director's cut of that episode, where it has more of an in-studio feel. There's some additional content in there that doesn't always make it to the public cut, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. And of course, from the $5 tier or higher, you can submit a question for Patrick or myself to answer live on air in our famous middle segment. It can be anything about the history we covered, history that's coming up, stuff that has to do with the show, what our plans are, how we do it, anything that relates to Patrick or myself's professional life, even if that's our professional life outside of the show, that is all in bounds. And I can tell you that it helped make the show a great deal more, helps us achieve higher quality, and hopefully in time, greater frequency. But if you're not able to do it, because we all know that times are hard right now, we are living through this together. There is another way that you can help out the show. If you are on a podcast app or podcast service that allows you to rate or review the show, like for example, on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a glowing five-star rating and review. One is it always helps out the show. It helps people find it, give them an idea of what they're getting into, and it goes a long way. On top of that, we read those, and they mean so much to us, don't they? I mean, it really does give you a good feeling like you're doing good work and you're heading in the right direction. It really does. So as someone who whose main profession is YouTube, and YouTube is a feedback-centric platform, you can't escape comments on there. Podcasts aren't as much. You don't, there's not a likes and dislikes bar with podcasts. There definitely isn't a comment section universal, but when you read reviews, you really it, it gives you a great insight into the like, oh my God, like this is working. People are enjoying this. It's such a great thing to see. It always fills my heart with warmth, rainbows, and sunshines when I read reviews. Absolutely. And if you happen to be listening to us on YouTube, if you're not already, of course, hit the subscribe button and the corresponding bell because it will let you know when a new episode of AD History drops, which of course is every other Saturday. In addition to that, 
leave a like or leave a comment. We love hearing your comments. It's great to know you're there. It's definitely one of the quickest ways to get our attention, of course. And of course, if you do want to get our attention and you want to send in something to us or get something to our attention, you can always reach us on the socials, whether that be commenting on something or sending us a message directly. And of course, you can always email us at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Once again, our email is adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. So if you want to help with the show, definitely consider donating on Patreon. But if you can't do it, best way to do it is leaving a glowing five-star rating and review if your podcast app of choice offers it, or subscribing, liking, sharing, and commenting on YouTube. And with that, we're going to get back to the rest of Diocletian's reform right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Thank you very much, Anna. And we are back. And Diocletian just doesn't stop. And Paul, you've got some very interesting uh, things to say about Diocletian's civil administrative reforms. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the home stretch of the crisis of the third century and the third season of the AD History Podcast. Of course, I forgot this is the end of the third series. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And perhaps the greatest and most long-lasting and influential changes Diocletian made was to the civil administration and how it affected later medieval Europe, and especially what we call in this period the Eastern Roman Empire. As mentioned previously and in prior episodes, over time, the military began assuming civil administrative roles as well as their primary military functions. Serving in both roles often meant the focus of one came at the expense of the other, as we had mentioned before. This was particularly glaring during the 3rd century crisis, where the military had a tendency to be strongly focused on its own self-interest and often fighting itself. Hence, the empire had largely become a degenerate when it came to its responsibilities fulfilling its role to serve the Roman people. And prior to Diocletian, the perception that Rome only appeared interested in collecting its subjects' taxes was both widespread and accurate, providing little in return. Diocletian was keenly aware of this reality, guys, and he clearly saw the significant changes that were required to fulfill Rome's governmental obligations, because if you're paying taxes, you deserve something in return for it. You don't want to be <laughs> exploited by any means. And in doing so, he sought out to create an entire new swath of professional, civil, career bureaucrats to make this possible. In doing so, he effectively raised what became effectively an army of bureaucrats at every rung of Roman governance, expanding that system of bureaucracy to a staggering extent. He wanted to build an entirely overhauled system of civil administration that was without precedent, that carried out the policies of the empire and the emperor itself with skillful exactitude. And like we discussed in the previous episode with the advent of the Tetrarchy, Diocletian's fundamental belief was that there were few two people to properly serve these obligations, and those people had far too many responsibilities to properly address them. So he created the Tetrarchy, but that was, not the, that was only the beginning and a taste of what he had in mind. He was intent to bring all of these changes to the ground level, starting from the top. Though not everybody made the team, 
and some were cut. And honestly, the most notable such examples were the Senate. Yeah, so from a political slash governmental level, um, we've seen in our show that since like, literally episode two, way back in season one, the Roman Senate was at best a mere shadow of what it once was. While it's fair to say their influence waxed and waned depending on the disposition of any given emperor, one need only contrast Domitian and Marcus Aurelius, two emperors from the Pax Romana, with vastly different relationships with the Senate for adequate reference. However, they certainly did play a part over those three centuries, doing all sorts of things. Some individual senators held strong influence with certain emperors, and various individuals were appointed to posts outside the Senate that carried power. But it's also pretty darn clear that by the late 3rd century, the Senate as a body seemed somewhat timid at the prospect of making serious major decisions. Think back to when they appointed Tacitus as Aurelian's successor, the army demonstrating uncharacteristically what some have characterized as remorse for being duped into murdering Aurelian and affirmed the responsibility to the Senate. The Senate initially demurred. That's how far they had fallen as a body and when faced with a major they didn't even seem comfortable with. But on the whole, after Augustus, most senators had to accept the fact that they had only the appearance of power and not substance. Yet now that was over too. But Now they didn't have to hold a candle to the role of the Senate from Rome's Republican days, or even the appearance of power since Augustus. Diocletian took this to the next step. As mentioned in the last episode, guys, with Diocletian transformed the office of emperor from the princeps of old into a near godlike figure, the lord of the emperor, it left no room for them. It's pretty hard for those toga-wearing mere mortals to complete with that. Who, who, Who could? Nobody. Nobody, no, like that's what Diocletian had done and just made the Senate seem useless. And moreover, as mentioned in our previous episode, Diocletian only travelled to Rome once during his Rome. No physical continuous access to the emperor for the senators meant no tangible power they could possibly wield. And Diocletian seemed to hold no special place for the bluest of the Roman bluebloods, though I've not come across anything to suggest he held a chip on his shoulder for them either. I mean, why would he? He was the son of a freedman who hailed from Dalmatia, not exactly the recipe for senatorial reverence on his part. Moreover, given his extremely humble origins, they would likely take exception to him. And with the vacuum of having the Senate as the aristocratic consultative body for the emperor, or the often small number of unofficial influential personal confidence holding sway, who we've seen a countless number of us thus far in the show range from awesome to awful, yep. the emperor had what seemed like a small garrison of professional advisors at his right hand, individuals appointed by him that were professional from numerous fields, concerning themselves to provide information, insight, and consultation from the emperor in their sphere of competence. Yes, and you're listening to this And you're saying to yourself, at least I am, which is this sounds so much like modern politicians where the higher and more powerful their post, this is certainly true in your country and mine, the more of these professional advisors that they're surrounded with. But as emperor, it sounds very much analogous to the small army of appointed advisors and experts that world leaders have around them constantly. They travel with him and they meet with him everywhere. It does sound very familiar. It sounds very modern in a way. It does sound so modern in its own strange way. And it's strange to think of that we're on the cusp of the Dark Ages, where basically 
society plunges into it almost plunges back to before Roman intellect. You know, it wouldn't be until the Renaissance and the Enlightenment people start to think more widely about the world and we start to see things like this take shape. We seemed so on the precipice of a modern world here before before it all went a bit haywire again. But it's just fascinating to see that pool. Oh, it really is. And there's like I said, there's something very modern in all of that. But you know, he's doing away with the Senate now effectively. Because they have no access to power. There's no proximity to power. There's no use to that of them. No, and he has no love for them. You know, he has been, I think, to some degree categorized in history as having something against the Senate. I personally have never really had that impression. What I would say is he had no connection or fondness for them because why would he? He did not he was never they were not part of his world. He was not part of their world effectively. And so there's no connection there and they seem fairly they seem fairly useless and to be honest with you they were there's nothing i cannot see any reason this ultimate pragmatist albeit one with a huge vision in terms of size and scope would have any reason to keep them around but he did no. something else that was interesting that is really no well they got rid of the senate effectively and the most they would ever become were very low-ranking politicians. They were just on the out. But he did bring somebody into incredible prominence, somebody that we've heard of many times, and that is the Praetorian Prefect, because that term is very familiar to longtime listeners of AD history, given the role the Praetorian Guard has played in events at the epicenter of Roman power, a.k.a. killing emperors for one reason or another, usually in their own self-interest, might I add. The Praetorian Prefect had been the head of this body that was originally tasked with the Emperor's personal protection. And it really started going south in the personal protection route when they decided to up and kill Caligula, as you may recall back in early Season 1. But under Diocletian, the Praetorian Prefect held little or no military authority. And instead, he had supreme civilian administrative authority. In fact, within this realm, the power of this position held was only second to the emperor himself, both in structure and as well as in fact. He was the number two man in the empire. He was the top of the new pyramid of bureaucracy Diocletian was building. And for all that it's worth, the Praetorian Prefect, in many cases, in many scenarios, his word, his signature, was equivalent to the emperor. So he was really the number two guy in the empire itself. And what he did as head of this new civil administration pyramid that Diocletian is building led him to oversee what was then known as the consistory. Now, the consistory is very similar in many ways to a U.S. president's cabinet or prime minister's cabinets of secretaries with portfolio. They were the chiefs of what they called the scrinia and were directly charged with answering to the praetorian prefect. Now, what are the scrinia? The scrinia were the civil administrative departments, with each scrinia holding a specific purpose, focus, or function. Like, for example, the Department of Finance. You guys get the idea here. And the scrinia were made up of professional career civil servants focused on a specific element of imperial administrative interest in regards to carrying out policy and in some case helping to form it in the administrative side of things. 
these civil servants in the Scrinia trickled down all the way to the proverbial street level. And you look at this, and at face value, this looks like Diocletian was aiming to create an almost military chain of command for the otherwise civilian force of professional administrators. And if you came to that observation as well, guess what, guys? You're right, because that's exactly what he was doing. There was an interesting byproduct, Patrick, of mm. how this worked out, specifically when civil administrative duties had so often fallen to the military prior to this, which is to say, just like in military ranks, there is an established functioning chain of command in order to pass down orders, communicate information, and to handle matters in that very formalized hierarchical fashion. And for Diocletian, who, once again, let's remind everybody, was a military man, this just fit naturally to him. This was intuitive for Diocletian. And that's precisely what he did with the Scrinia and the various rungs that went down the empire in creating this huge new bureaucracy. So Diocletian, because he was a military command, very much loved this chain of command structure that effectively was already in place. And interesting enough, Diocletian dictated that these new professional civil administrators would actually be given a uniform. They would not be wearing the traditional respected civilian togas, like you would see a senator wearing, whatever the case may be, right? But he actually had it so they wore a cloak that was strongly reminiscent of those worn by the military. And Diocletian was hardly done yet with the sweeping reforms. I think we've learned this so far. Where didn't he stop? In his drive to wash away the old and usher in his idealized vision of Rome, he took aim at the map itself, namely the provinces of the empire and how they were organized and configured. Yeah, like from what I can, from what I've read, Paul, he literally redrew the map of Rome and Diocletian completely reorganized the size and shape of the Roman provinces themselves. His aim was to create smaller provinces requiring more governors to administrate them. He transformed the sum of 50 provinces that comprised the emperor to over 100. Though with smaller provinces, the governors had less territory and population to worry about thus giving them greater time and focus on their smaller assigned provinces. Smaller provinces also meant that they could derive less resources and often taxes by which to fuel a bit of usurpation. Even now, the governors no longer being military commanders, there still was that idea that they may usurp. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Diocletian also sought to treat and administer all provinces in the empire with an equal hand. This was good news for some, and not great for others, the Italian peninsula, the cradle of Roman and Latin civilization, lost its tax-exempt status, except for Rome itself, obviously. And Egypt lost most of its long-held sovereignty to administer itself. Yeah, and this is interesting. So as we've seen so much through AD history in regards to Rome, the Italian peninsula and the city of Rome itself always kind of ha held this special status, where in many respects, the way the system works, certainly economically, we covered this with Robert, during his guest hosting spot, is that for the most part, even though, of course, the provinces had many good reasons to buy in the empire when it was functioning, a lot of this was done for the benefit of the city of Rome and the Italian peninsula itself. And there were many various things that were beneficial to them, but the tax-exempt status was a huge one, to be sure. And of course, with the exception of Rome, that was no longer the case. 
And what's interesting here is now we can begin seeing Rome losing its, you know, revered place in the Roman imperial world. And it's really no surprise now that not a few decades down the road from where our show is currently, that Constantine will then decide to pick up and move the capital of the empire from Rome to what then would be known as Constantinople or Istanbul or Byzantium, whatever you want to call it. Rome and its status and its importance is definitely clearly on the decline, and this is one of the major examples of that. I mean, really, is it any surprise that we'll see the the capital of this empire change altogether a few decades down the road? No, like when you when when you first hear the fact that the Rome that the Roman emperor left Rome to have a capital elsewhere, that sounds mad just in a vacuum. But when you dig into the history, it makes all the sense in the world because Rome really was on the down, like Rome as in the city itself. It makes all the sense as well that they'll jump ship to uh, Byzantium or Constantinople or Istanbul or whatever you want to call it at any given time in history. It makes all the sense in the world when you study the history. No doubt. And the other casualty of this decline of influence and importance and what we would call preferential status, of course, naturally was Egypt. Mm, like the breadbasket, as we like to call it so the often. The breadbasket was one of the major things that it brought, but it was also a, a huge, huge contributor in regards to, say, Red Sea trade, specifically those sea routes between the Red Sea and India, which brought in a ton of money. They had some very, very lucrative mines for things like silver. And Alexandria, as we've talked about in the past, if Rome was the official capital, Alexandria was capital 1A. I mean, hell, when you look at Mark Antony, one of the points of propaganda that Augustus was spreading when we're talking about the Second Triumvirate breaking up, was that he kept proposing the possibility that, hey, if this guy takes over, Rome's not going to be the capital anymore. He's going to move it to Alexandria. Look where he is right now. Look who he shacked up with in terms of Cleopatra. This is what he's going to do. And there's a reason why that worked. It's because it sounded so plausible because Alexandria was the place. Egypt was so incredibly wealthy. It added so much to the empire. But it, in its preferential status, it also had the ability for a certain level of sovereignty over its own affairs, keeping its own records, things of that nature. Apparently, they even minted their own coins. I was unaware of this until very recently, but that yeah. was done as well, even though there was a major difference in this case between Rome, the, which I should say the Italian peninsula and Rome and Egypt, which is that Egypt was never tax exempt. No. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's just interesting to say, you know, you wasn't tax exempt. It still had a huge amount of power unto itself and Diocletian more or less took that away from Egypt. In his eyes, it was just another province of Rome. Indeed. And it's very it very much speaks to the fact that in the case of Diocletian, this was like I said, a guy who came from nowhere, the son of a freedman from Dalmatia. I mean, yes, it's the empire he revered. It was the empire he served, but he certainly was not a product of that self-important Roman epicenter. And this is very much a product of that. Yeah, not in the slightest. He, he was so far removed from the concept of an emperor we had just a few hundred years ago. He's, he's not that at all. Even just a few, few decades ago, he's just, that ain't him. That's, that's not Rome anymore. And he, and he didn't 
fall into the nostalgia of it. He didn't want to be that either. Not I said, why all. would he want to be? No. And with that in mind, he went back to the map again. So we had mentioned earlier that he created what was roughly around 50 provinces and turned it into 100 by making them smaller. However, you have now over slightly over 100 plus provinces didn't exist, and that's a lot of different areas. Now, of course, the way he had envisaged it was that smaller provinces, more governors, more administrators, they have less to worry about, and they're more able to do their job because they have less on their plate. In theory, this all works out well. But now when you have 100 plus provinces, you need a way to be able to manage that incredibly enlarged figure. And so by doing that, he created what were essentially macro municipalities that they ended up calling dioceses. And yes, this sounds very familiar, but we'll get to that one in a moment. So the diocese created 12 administrative, what we call super jurisdictions, I think that's the best way I could put that, on a level just above the provincial level and their governors that were called dioceses. And these dioceses usually ranged from having, at the lowest, four provinces in their super jurisdictions up to 16. I think the Italian peninsula was one that had 16, for example. And each of these dioceses were run by figures that held the title of vicars. And the vicars themselves <laughs> fell under the domain of the so-called Praetorian prefect. And once again, <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment, but the dioceses were meant for coordinating, executing, and administrating policies across the greater empire on the macro level, because 100 plus provinces is very hard to do if you don't have someone sitting there in between. And they would take orders from above and help implement them below. In essence, they served effectively as the empire's middle management, not to belittle them by any means, but they were essentially the empire's middle management in the big picture. And you're looking at these terms that sound awfully familiar. Diocese vicars. What does this remind you of, Sir Patrick? If you've ever wondered why on earth it's called the Roman Catholic Church, what, 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 what makes it so Roman, this pretty much covers that all up for you. This is incredibly like the structure of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And I've often wondered myself what makes it so Roman. This is a good, this is a good entry way to understand. So it's great to know Diocletian pretty much invented the modern Roman Catholic Church as we know it today. That's fascinating to hear. And it's worth noting that Vickers here is spelt somewhat different. It's V-I-C-K-E-R-S, not V-I-C-A-R-S as we know it today. But it sounds the same, doesn't it? No, this is absolutely fascinating to hear, Paul. Like really, really interesting stuff. Like we are really on the cusp of the Middle Ages now where it will only take a few more years until Constantine makes the empire Catholic. The, the, the religion that they've turned their back on so much they abandoned their old god they abandoned jupiter and juno and turned to jesus and that's quite a shocking thing and that's that's resonated into europe into the modern day and this is where it's beginning to happen it seems like anyway absolutely and especially when you're talking about the western portion of the empire and these dioceses oh, and vicars yeah. of course a little bit later on church officials of the catholic church will actually end up overseeing these jurisdictions so you're seeing the the beginning. You're seeing the the seed for these things that are so well known and and would rem be remain known ever since in this case. 
And it's worth mentioning there have been quite a few popes so far. We really haven't talked about popes that much, but they're about, they just don't hold the power they do today. No, but we're definitely going to get to a point where we're going to start talking about some popes because there's some interesting ones out there and they are quite important. (laughs) These are the big ones for Diocletian, right? These are the big changes that he made. And while he's often credited with ending the third century crisis and implementing systems that would help the empire endure into the future, he wasn't completely successful in all of these, and others, the legacy lives well on past him. And so when you look at some of the successes and failures, I think there's actually one failure that I want to talk about in particular that we really didn't get to, but we absolutely must because it is so important when it comes to Diocletian. Is while we said he was not always successful, and one of the areas that he was least successful was the economy. This man was no economist, let's put it that way. The one that we do want to talk about, naturally, is the infamous edict on maximum prices. Yeah, so uh, this is something that we really ought to address the last time, but we we had so much to talk about, it kind of slipped from our memory. But the edict on prices was basically Diocletian declared that certain products will be stuck at one certain price, e.g. a bag of wheat would cost X amount of money, I can't remember the exact amount, the Roman currency, but it will cost $4 in modern terms for a bag of wheat, and one bag of wheat will always cost $4 no matter what. And while that sounds good in theory, people aren't going to obey that in reality, Paul. There'll Hell be people no, they saying, won't. no, people will sell the bare, like the lowest quality of wheat for $4, but they'll be like, hey, if you want some nicer, fresher wheat, I can get you a bag of that for maybe $5, $6, and so on. So, that edict really did not work out too well. Yes. And so he put the maximum price you could sell on a particular commodity. Of course, you could sell it for less if you wanted to. But the fact of the matter is, and we've seen this so many times, both whether we're talking about antiquity, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance last week, is that, believe me, when there can be a thriving black market, there will be a thriving black market. And Rome was really no exception in this. Even though the the penalty was quite steep for getting caught doing this, nobody in their right mind would turn in another for doing it. Even administrators wouldn't do because they still had to live there. And so if you wanted the better stuff and you still wanted to make realistically some kind of money and not being held back on it, well, this is so nice in theory, there's no bloody way that somebody was going to follow that. I wouldn't have followed that. No, like, yeah, it just makes all sense in the world how easy. We need to go back to last year of the toilet paper pool. People yes, were willing yes, to buy yes. stuff for a high price. And that's what happened here. Yeah. So Diocletian's edicts weren't his finest moments. Well, certainly not an edict on maximum prices. The other thing that unfortunately didn't end up working out as well was the Tetrarchy. It ended up effectively falling apart almost as soon as he step down from power. Yeah, we're going to talk about that yeah, pretty soon. Yeah, that's going to end up in some serious internal conflict as well, because he also ended up with these tetrarchs in charge of these quadrants of the empire that were starting to get into many arms races with each other. Yeah. You know, the, you, you, could, you could take them out of the third century, but oddly enough, you couldn't take the third century out of them. No, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. But the thing that he was most successful at where the longest lasting influence would ultimately be is ultimately in far as the civil administrative reforms. 
And this was very, very clear and prevalent when it came to what we know at this point in history of our show as the Eastern Empire, where, as we mentioned briefly, the concept of something being Byzantine, which is to say overly complex and bureaucratic and just somewhat mind-blowing, you'd also call it Kafkaesque if you wanted to, though that term <laughs> would not come around for some time to follow. The fact of the matter is that played a very considerable role in Rome's proper successor in the East. And once again, as we were talking about earlier, look at the Roman Catholic Church. We're still talking about dioceses today. Yeah, and vicars as well, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really just absolutely staggering stuff. And the real question here is, Patrick, given what Rome had been through in this century, at least in your opinion, did it require this kind of sweeping reforms in effectively every element of Roman life in order to extricate itself from this debacle? Did it need it? That's a very big question, Paul. Part of me feels like it did. I feel like they were so stuck in their way, like some of the things that just been going on for so long. Obviously, this crisis of the third century, while we've discovered, while we covered it in 10 or so episodes, this would have been 100 years. Something big needed to happen to sort Rome out. And I guess Diocletian and his military and civil reforms were that big thing. And it changed Rome fundamentally, but perhaps Rome needed to change. Things need to change. They need to adapt. And Rome, the world as a whole, was changing. You know, the Sassanids were getting stronger. The Germanic tribes were getting stronger. Rome couldn't just rely on its old tactics anymore. It needed to do something different. Whether this was the correct different is, of course, a different question, but this was definitely different. This is a different Rome we're seeing. It's fundamentally not Rome anymore, at least not Rome we know it as here. The capital more or less changed. You know, the emperor was only in Rome one time, and even that one time he got sick and led to his death. Absolutely. If that isn't poetic in its very nature, I don't know what is. But let's take a moment to think about this. Think about Rome when we started this third season with the emergence of Septimius Severus shortly before the dawn of the third century, and an individual, quite unintentionally, but through some of the policies that he implemented, ultimately unintentionally led to a lot of the chaos that began. And you look at where we were at the beginning of this third season, in the beginning of the third century, and we were not even that far removed from these Pax Romana five great emperors, from the Hadrians, from the Marcus Aureliuses, from the Antoninus Piuses group. And it hasn't even been 150 years, and we're not just talking about a different empire in form. We're talking about a very different empire in attitude, and how it views itself, and how it views itself relative to the greater world that it inhabits. This is not the it doesn't come off as the same kind of very self-confident, self-assured Rome that always knew it would come out as top dog, that said, we are Roman and we are spreading our civilization. All of that had changed as the legions changed and that they were less Italian by virtue of the fact that the Roman army, in many cases, was the greatest spreader of Latin civilization, and it is now encompassing so many people from different parts of the empire who don't have that ethnic background. You're not seeing that same kind of homogenized Romanization that we saw early on in our show. We're not seeing a situation where the Roman military is so outclassing their neighbors. And we're not even seeing a Roman military 
that is all that interested in conquest. They're not even taking the fight to the enemy for the most part by design. They're going after what appears to be defense in depth. This is an empire that is looking at itself very differently, that is operating on an entirely different basis. And though you never want to use hindsight, and we try our best to use a prospective perspective, seeing the time of the people living there. Well, from what we can tell, many in the empire certainly felt that life had improved under Diocletian. This isn't our Rome anymore, is it? It's almost sad, Paul. In a way. It, it is quite sad to see. I feel like, obviously, we've covered a lot of our parts. I've covered China in depth at part points, and yourself, Paul, you've looked into Sassanists, but Rome has been our bread and butter so far during this podcast. And to see it coming to an end like this, because obviously we know this is this is the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire, at least the Western Roman Empire. It's somewhat sad to see the mighty fall so much. See this great, powerful empire. This is the same empire that built Hadrian's Wall, that built the Colosseum. It's sad to see it in this state. And a lot of people don't think of Rome this state. A lot of people think of that big, mighty Roman Empire. But it ended. We know it ended. And unfortunately, we're reaching that end. It's just, it makes me a little bit sad to see in this day. I want to see it just put out his misery now, Paul. Yeah, while it will survive in its largely present form as a whole for about another century, we are kind of at a point, even though Diocletian was largely successful in many respects in terms of trying to get the train back on the tracks again, it is a melancholy note. That's the word for it, melancholy. And I think in a way for you and I, maybe more so than it would be for others civilizations that we've covered so far in 80 history, because this particular civilization has had such remarkable influence in our societies and how we govern ourselves and what we consider culture going all the way back. These forms, the way they live life and their legacy profoundly even affects our world today, perhaps even in some ways that we don't even fully recognize. But what I can say is this, at least answering my own question from earlier that we'll sign off on here. Did Rome need this? Well, I'll start by saying this. It needed something. Yeah, what happened so something. far was not working. And for his credit, even though he most certainly was not successful in everything and that the East would be far more positively affected and influenced by this in the long run because they will eventually bifurcate the West and the East, it was necessary and to whatever extent, either successful or failing at the various things he got his fingers in. I mean, how many pies could this guy get his fingers in? Something had to happen. And yeah. for Rome's sake, for like I said, for almost another century, they can luck their, thank their lucky stars that Diocletian came in and did the job. And Lord knows that in the post of Roman emperor, the job in that case, Rome changed far more during this time in his rule, then it changed him. And there's no question about this. Save Augustus. Really, save Augustus. There is no Roman emperor that had a greater effect on the empire as a whole for every individual living within its borders than Diocletian. And perhaps the only one that can rival it in terms of the bigger picture of the entire world is going to succeed Diocletian. And just as a quick note before we sign off, we do recognize that we have not talked about Diocletian's Christian persecutions, but we will cover that when we get later on in the episode of Constantine and the Empire's conversion to Christianity. So we haven't forgotten about that. Believe me, guys, 
but we're going to leave that another time where we can give that more proper focus. Any other thoughts, Patrick? Goodbye, third century. Well, I say goodbye, but we've we made a very deliberate decision to focus primarily on this crisis when it came to tackling the third century pool. But this is why we do the What We Missed episode. So the third century isn't going anywhere just yet. What the crisis may do, we've got a whole episode of What We Missed for the third century oh. to tackle pool. And that's going to be really exciting. This What We Missed is going to be a wild one. This is going to be a yeah. wild, this is going to be a riled rager. So guys, be sure to tune in for that. I have no clue what it's going to be. I've been so focused on this crisis. I have no clue what else has been happening in the wider world. So I'm really looking forward to researching that myself. Absolutely. And thank you guys so much for joining us on this journey so far through three seasons of AD history. You have made this entirely worthwhile. And each and every one of you, wherever you may be listening, wherever you may be in your life, we thank you for tuning in and helping us make this a show that you really enjoy and deserve and for taking the time to tune in every couple of weeks and listen to the AD History Podcast. And we hope you enjoyed our coverage of Rome's crisis of the third century. And we will see you next time in the third century, what we missed, which like I said, it's going to be a rager <laughs> without a doubt. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye. Thank you. And take care. Yes. Thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.